0: about him, called Yama Buda Ben Hatahana. For 30 years, he has been a Talmud of Ravaran Lichtenstein, and he's here to share not only Ravaran's Torah and philosophy, but also share with us what he observed about Ravaran's personality. and I want to thank you for your Achnessesarchim, and more importantly, thank you for helping to be with Kadashem Shemayim, in a city that was always known as the city of Torah, and Baruch Hashem, it continues to be a city of Torah, and of Kabut Chachamim. Rabbi um Talbis, he concluded his shir with a few stories. So before I begin my shir, I want to complement his stories with two or three other stories. So one of the stories that Rabbi Talvis mentioned, as mentioned in the stories you told, were the people who made the shiva call. I, I asked for permission to give a share. People that paid the shiva call to her. Listen to the mechanic that he hadn't seen in 10 years in this community. Yushalayim, the grocery store owner. Do you know who was bawling at the shiva? Bawling, crying their eyes out. The Palestinian workers in yeshiva crying uncontrollably. I can tell you their names. Id and Muhammad and Nasser. Because the degree of respect he had for human beings was, and I'm a man of words, was simply indescribable. Indescribable. And the other people who were bawling at the Shiva were the Aniim. I'll say this as carefully as I can. The Aniim abused Revarim. They would line up at his house at night they would come in cars, as you know. And Ravaran would mention to all of them, maybe you should get a job, maybe your family's getting a little too large, it's hard to support. A lot of them were avrechem, terminally, learning in the kollel, And sometimes they would engage in conversation with them, and they'd defend their position. And Ravaran would try to softly encourage them, but he always cut them, not just checks, but lavish checks. Lavish checks. And then name, it, it was a lineup. It was The dichotomy to me was striking because... All the big wigs and politicians and the president came and Netanyahu came and he really could care less. But when I saw the Aniem walking in, the Palestinian workers—those are the true measure of the men. I'm sure many people in this audience remember Gerald Ford. Right, so Gerald Ford gets an unfair shake in history because he really was a very intelligent, homespun wisdom. Because he was a bit clumsy and schlepidic and uh, so he gets an unfair shake. So Gerald Ford. Once was speaking to an audience in Boca Raton, thousands of people, and he got caught in a monsoon before the speech began. So he came in with his rumpled suit and his frazzled hair, he was a little bald, and came in and he said, My father, I always would his father Avi Murray, my father told me that nobility is not of the cloth or of the wallet, it's of the spirit. Don't look at how I'm dressed, how much money. So, you know, bigwigs and politicians, Alken Yomra Moslem, Bol Cheshbon. The real Moslem are not people that are, you know, the celebrities and the diplomats, but people of moral energy and kindness. So the fact that the president came and Tanya came, I could care less. But the fact that the Palestinian workers and the mechanic that Rabbi Taubis is talking about, that showed the true measure of the man. And Rabbi Taubis also mentioned, coming back from the protests in the Six-Day War, and not seeing anything as too demeaning or low for him to perform and cleaning up the candy wrappers on the bus. I want to tell you two stories. I'll tell you them in order. When Reb Luchnesin first came to the yeshiva in 71, the yeshiva was very small, very poor. They didn't have enough chairs. So the boys had to carry the chairs from the shir room to the lunchroom. room. chairs back and forth. So Rav was the last person to file out of the shear because people ask him questions. So the boys all carry their chairs into the lunchroom. Can anyone finish the story for me, please? Nope. Nope. He carried two chairs. He came into the lunchroom carrying two chairs. And that says it all. And, tragically, as the boys left the base medrash, On Yom Kippur, to go to the Yom Kippur War, many years later, it was a very difficult and traumatic moment in the yeshiva. They left literally right after David, and eight of them lost their lives. Rav Lich stood at the door of the Beis Medrash, handing things out. What do you think he was giving his Talmudim on the way to war? I won't ask you to finish, because I can't imagine, unless you've heard this story, you'd even imagine what he was doing. Toilet paper He was handing out rolls of toilet paper Because his bachram were being They were tankists They were tank fighters And during war you, you can't come out of your tank So you have to train yourself to Attend to your needs inside the tank And they hadn't been war trained So he realized They didn't realize that they had to carry toilet paper So he's standing by the door of the yeshiva Matzahim Kippur Handing out rolls of toilet paper so it's cleaning up the wrappers, and carrying the chairs, and whenever, you know, sometimes when you'll throw something in the garbage, and you'll miss, it's not, I, can never, I can never walk by, because I think Reverend's looking at me, I get to pick up the paper, and go to the garbage, and make sure everything's clean, and make sure, because I feel so driven by that spirit. So, a lot of people describe the word though and it's a word that's become very, very inflated and overused. Anything which is inflated loses meaning. We simply bandy it about, apply it recklessly and irresponsibly. And obviously this was a man who was a gadol. What does it mean to be a gadol? I spoke on Shabbos a little bit about the combination between breadth and depth. And again, I apologize for those who were listening to this on Shabbos. I'll summarize it very briefly because it's important. But I want to describe a different definition of a gadol. I'm going to say five or six traits of Vavodas HaShem, and I want you to t- try to associate that trait with someone that modeled it and inspired it in you. So I'm going to make seven or eight traits and think about, oh, that trait, I saw it in this person. That trait, I saw it in this person. Talmud Torah, Fervent davening. Piety. Sensitivity. Compassion. Commitment to land. Honesty to people. Family. Social consciousness. The list goes on, obviously. We could compile a list of dozens of traits necessary to be a true Obed Hashem. I imagine that when I listed those traits, you were probably conjuring different images. Oh, that person really was a Mosque. That person really was a Balchizedek. That person... What happens when you meet one person that encompasses the entire sweep? Every single trait you'd ever want to aspire to, you see in that person's identity. That's breath. Sweet. But then there's a second component. Does anyone remember their 8th grade Rebbe? Very charismatic. Their ninth grade Mora, Their counselor in summer camp. They inspired us at that juncture. And we grew on and we moved on and it became quaint and antiquated. We outgrew their inspiration. Baruch Hashem. We have people in our lives that move us to the next juncture, to the next station. What happens when the level... At which those traits were displayed, were so deep and so surpassing that you can never outgrow them. You, they never become quaint. You continue to be inspired by them. That to me is a god of, Who displays and showcases every possible trait you could want in a manner and a standard that's so surpassing that you'll always be driven. Always feel like a failure, but in a healthy fashion you'll never ever attain. I know that in any single trait that I strive for, I will never even come close to the standard set. <clears throat> but I'm thrilled to live a driven life. And a life that is integrated through one source of inspiration. And I think that provides confidence in a Hashem. You don't have to patch together different ideas and ideologies. So it's important to patch it It's important to be exposed to different drachim. But today there's a lot of underconfidence in, <coughs> in Abod HaShem. What are these people doing looking over your shoulder? What are these people conforming? It's not authentic sometimes. When you find one address, one integrated model, that sets the tone in every single aspect of your religious experience, and sets that tone in a surpassing model, that's a gadol. And Baruch HaShem, those people love have and Mervar, wasn't the only gadol, it's not the only gadol, there are a lot of people here uh, in, in this community, encountered Gedolam, but it's a treasure and it's an asset to value and to relish. But today I want to discuss a different aspect of what I think made him a Gedolam and what I think, not having met too many other Gedolam, but I surmise probably is latent in other Gedolam of that stature. Sometimes we limit ourselves by defining ourselves in contracting and, and confining fashion. If you ask me what type of Jew I am, I'm not a modern Orthodox Jew. I'm not a national religious Jew. I'm not a Haredi. I try to be an Oved Hashem. And I have to make a decision. I can't build a school for my own child. I don't have enough money. I can't build a mikveh for my own wife. I can't build a, a school for my... So I have to pool resources with people of like-minded values and live in a community. So I live in a national religious community. If you live in a modern Orthodox community, you live... But some people limit themselves. They imprison themselves ideologically. I mean, this person, they probably act this way, behave this way, either. Some people limit themselves not ideologically, but intellectually. In colleges today, they have two very, very dangerous courses. And I strongly encourage the students not to attend either of these courses. Physics for poets and Literature for mathematicians. Well, you're, defi- you're a humanities person you shouldn't really be involved in concrete thought structures so much of life so much of Gemara is thinking in finite, fixed absolute in math, there's no flexibility there's either the right answer or the wrong answer literature, humanities provides sensitivity, human condition aesthetic flair, imagination when I mean, Liminar is, oh I'm a, I'm a mathematician if you're a mathematician, you shouldn't appreciate color. You shouldn't have dreams. You shouldn't understand the human heart. I'm humanities major. Your mind should be a blur of nebulous thought rather than structured thinking. So we limit ourselves intellectually. We limit ourselves developmentally. I'm a happy person. Very happy people also can be serious. I'm a frugal person. We always define ourselves and we limit our experience, we limit our scope, we limit our ability to, to share experiences with other people, and of course we limit our relationship to Chiburku. Because you transmit. You imagine if your radio only had one channel. Okay, it happened to be too many channels. <laughs> but if you're if your radio you tell one channel, or the internet had one one site, how shallow your experience would be? And it got all in what I saw in was this uncanny ability to synthesize traits and experiences that seemed just so different, so collapsed, so conflicting, so antithetical. And he stitched them together so seamlessly, and it gave us the confidence and the drive to try to aspire to more, not to argue for our limitations, but to argue against them. Not to upset mediocrity, not to be capped by ceilings, but to stretch with courage and confidence because we saw an individual that lived this way. And by stretching ourselves to become as best as we could over the Hashem. So Rabbi Talbis had 57 the I'm not going to describe 57 different components. I'm not capable of that. I wanted to say five, because today is the day of five. Hamisha Devarim Iru is and and Shivasa, there are five events, but I couldn't limit it to five, so there'll be eight, but I'll try to be brief. Number one, the obvious, and everyone's spoken about this. Those who know him by his works, by his shiurim, by his lectures. Intellectual titan. That's not who he was. As the described so capably, the nicest, sweetest, most shenidik yid. He once told us about Eresham Mazalman, that they said about Eresham Arbach that if he hadn't been such a big-time in Yerushalayim. He would have been the nicest Jew in Yerushalayim. And when Eresham said that, we said, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> That's not just a statement about Eresham Mazalman. It's a statement about The author, the person speaking in front of us. I've never met a nicer person. Kinder, respect, respect, respect. In my mind, there are two types of people in this world. Those who show respect to other people. Those who don't show respect to other people. And it's an occupational hazard in Chinuch, because you have to. My job is to brainwash people. (laughs) That's my job. I'm open about it. I like to tell boys in yeshiva, we don't brainwash you in yeshiva. We brainwash you into believing you're not being brainwashed. <laughs> we have to brainwash you. That's the point. So how do you invade someone's neshama, make it dance, make it soar, animate it, inspire it, and still respect them and respect their individuality? Whenever you give advice, you would never tell us what... He would apologize dozens of... I'm sorry, I don't think you have to take it. You, you don't have to listen to me. Every single time he'd give advice, he'd be prefaced with, you don't have to listen to me. Take your own, take this into consideration, think about it. It may not be the right. Literally, it was like almost formulaic. It was just so respectful of people. He, he listened so carefully because he respected you. If I were to go over and ask him a question, so, tell me to come over and ask me questions. So it's a give and take. They, Rabbi, I'm going through this. this. I said, oh, you must mean this, you must mean that. Then they'll continue the question. It's a give and take. When you went to have Lichtenstein, he would sit there quietly, motionless, without moving a stitch of his body, listening until you finish your entire question. It would be a half an hour. You had no idea whether he, he thought you were crazy or. <laughs> there you go. Was, the face was completely poker faced, not intentionally. He was listening to, he could spit back every issue you raised, and then he would, in a systemic, organized fashion, address every. The famous story. They say in the yeshiva, when the Bluchin scene first came to the Gush in 1971, so here was a rabbi who was also a doctor who didn't learn with Riff Cook, who came from Salavet, who didn't have a beard. Quite frankly, the Israelis thought he was a Martian. They didn't know what to make of him. And there's just this young-looking, fresh-faced, doesn't really, can't really learn. He's an American. You know, Israelis have a very condescending view of America. Not me, don't <laughs> So they sent the top bachor over to grill him, to just ask him a question. He was in the base and go over and ask him some questions. Who was the top bachor then in Yeshiva? Yaakov Meidan is now the Rosh shiva. So Yaakov Meidan came over to Revar and was sitting and learning. And the Yaakov Meidan said I have a question in it tells us. Now when you ask someone a question in it tells us it tells us it's a third level question. You know, the Gemara... So the Rashi, the question the Tosas asks. So it's only polite not to say, what does this line in us mean? It's only polite to say, looking at this Gemara. Gemara says something, Rashi says something, I'm caught on this line in us. It's only polite, sir, Medan, provided that backdrop. And then he has the telescopic particular detail. A sat there like this. So Yaakov Medan assumed it he wasn't following. He didn't know what he was talking about. So he made it even more simple. Well, the Mishnah says so-and-so, the Gemara says so-and-so. And Ravarn sits there like this. So, this. so he said, well, we're learning Misachas Bav Metziah, and Bav talks about it, and it's written in Hebrew. He's really ready to show this. And Ravarn just sat there waiting. And Ravarn finished his question. And Ravaz says, oh, yeah, it's Rav Page 622, line 4. It's a Russian kulin. It's a dance. He listed 60 sources in answer to his question. And Medan went back with, the... <laughs> with his tail between his legs informing his Israeli cohorts you know, this is the real deal. You <laughs> don't have to worry. But his listening was so intense. Some people, listening is a very difficult art. Most of us when we listen we're planning our next sentence. We're just waiting for the speaker to finish. So we can add our two cents, our pearls of wisdom. This is the first thing he was mind. He literally listened to every single word he said. I could speak from now until Tisha B'av about the stories of his piety and his kindness and his politeness. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I hit him. I'll tell you, no, no one's going to ever say that. Why did I hit him? Because if, let's say, you're talking to someone and your back is towards me, I'll, and I need to say, hello, I yes. He would never interrupt the conversation. So I'd be having a conversation with someone and he'd sneak up behind me and wait like a mouse for me to finish. And I wouldn't know he was there. And I'd turn around and all of a sudden I'd I, you know, hit him or bump him or something because of who, who am I to disturb his conversation? I'll only tell one final story just because to me that's the story that I most remember. Yeshiva's located between the school and Alon Shvot and the community of Alon Shvot. So all the little kids walk through the yeshiva campus with their backpacks on every day to go to school. So, a long time ago in the 80s, Revan was late for Shir, so Beit mentioned before, he used to travel through Beit Lechem. Those days it was a longer travel, but he was uncommonly late. So we sent out one of the boys to see where Ravaran was. We sent to find where he was. He was in the lobby of the yeshiva at the water fountain. There were a couple of little school kids and they were having water fights at the water fountain. They were spritzing water on each other. And Ravira was waiting online to take a drink of water. <laughs> <laughs> having a water fight. Who, who am I to disturb their water fight? <laughs> so, that, that's the core. That's the core. It wasn't his as his erudition, his scholarship, our man of letters. It just such a, it wasn't even a sickness It was just his kindness, as Rav Talbis said before. Just such a shayna yid. It. it wasn't like the tzidkas described. He didn't need that tzidkas. He wasn't like Rav Talbot described. He was just such so a good person. He a loving individual. And the ability to combine those two. Generally, when we talk about those who are kind and we say it's sappy and mortal, and okay, who gets the valedictorian? The smartest boy girl in the class. And then we'll get the citizenship award as a consolation prize. Like in my day, it was Rice Aroni. Remember one the game shows? You win the trip to Bermuda, and you win Rice So <laughs> You win the intellectual scholarship award, and you win the citizenship, the, 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 you know, the good nature. And when someone of such erudition and scholarship who clearly prioritized kindness and goodness and piety and sweetness and compassion and dignity, it's just no one, no one could acquit themselves of that moral responsibility by saying, oh, kindness is for the dumb people, it's for the less sharp pencils in the drawer. But, you know, I'm too... No, because Evelichton scene was so smart and was so accomplished and was such a big time. And yet, so, you, you have to attend to those responsibilities. That's number one. Number two, I never, ever heard him raise his voice. Sometimes he spoke inaudibly. And when you combine that with the level of his language, it was simply incomprehensible. He wouldn't scream. He wouldn't project. His words are very difficult. Never heard him scream. He was a delicate person. He was genteel, not just kind. He was just a very genteel person to his wife to his children he would not take a ride home from a wedding because he would always go to weddings he would not take a ride home for a wedding and sit in the front seat he refused to get in the car and separate a man from his wife to this day I can't I, I, it fights with my tummy I will not sit You know, and I'm a tall person he would not sit in the front seat he would simply refuse to get into the car I'm going to get between a man and his wife when they're driving home together one of my friends at our told me a story, because it's a beautiful story on many fronts, and it relates to this. A couple years ago, they were driving back from a wedding, and Rav Luchensky was in the back seat. So, um, what happened? One, one of the, the person driving said, I lost my binoculars, and someone returned them to me, and how great the mitzvah of Hashem is. So Rav, Rons, Rav Rons said, Yeah, I a similar example. Fifty years ago, I found the paritzvah on the subway. And he didn't say anything else, but he made like a little gesture. So the husband and the wife turned to him and they understood by implication that he would never promote himself. They both turned and said, You still have them? And I said, Yes, I still have them. When he was Nifter, we're going through his office. That pair of trillion he found on the subway 50 years ago is on his desk in his office. Literally on his desk because he still wants to do a kind of ministry. Now you have to decide what to do with those film and they're nameless. To, today you put it on Facebook and pictures <laughs> 50 years ago. He was so soft spoken. But he also had the ability to scream. Today Shiva Subramaniam. Every Shiva Subramaniam. He received Haftara. Shlishi and Aftar. (laughs) My aser betamos is defined by the following. And what I did was rude. In our society, we don't scream. It's not civil. We're invading each other's space. It's a relic of a barbaric past where people screamed and clubbed each other. We're more civilized. We speak in whispers. But when you're standing in front of HaKadosh Baruch, social graces, societal conventions, you shout. You're just standing in front of HaKadosh Baruch. You, you, you have no concern about your dignity like David Amalek dancing in front of the arm. You would scream. You're listening to his bircha satara, You felt as if Shemaim was Niftach. Korah Shemaim. Shebach Arbonu is screaming. Erev Rosh Hashanah in YU in the 80s, the Bachman would walk up and down the Bezmeresh. Oh, Zeruah, Matzadik. Just remembering him saying, Or Zeruah. Matzadik, Lishre Lev Simcha. In Yeshiva and Harat you did not need to listen to T'Kios in Rosh Hashanah. You were Pater from T'Kios because he was the mockery, and he said the tekiahs with such kavana, at such decibel level, you didn't need a chauffeur. You didn't say tekiah. Tekiah! Every, to the end of his life. Till last year. This past year. He was a little uh, confused, and there was someone helping him. It may seem like a t- trivial issue, but it, to me it, it wasn't. So, so soft, never angry, Never said the word no. I, whenever someone asked, he couldn't say no. He couldn't find compromise and maybe we'll give it. The people that had the most outlandish requests, the most outlandish, can mamish never say no? Never screamed, never angry, but when he stood in front of Kutchebrichu, when he was giving Shia, he thundered. He thundered. It was fulminating. I came to Yeshiva. I had absolutely no plans. My uncle and aunt are here, I can attest this. I had no plans to be a Rebbe, and I was going to go for one year, go back and be a dentist, and Shalom Yisrael. He gave a sheer Air of Puram, described Esther's hesitance to engage Achashverosh and defend the Jewish people. She's worried about her nail polish and her mascara. She hasn't been called cool for thirty days. And Mordechai confronts her and simplifies it. Do you care about Am Yisrael, do you not? If you care, then you won't be concerned with your own safety. If you don't care, He spun this for an hour and a half. Everything was long in yeshiva. And he built it up to his crescendo. And he was screaming at the top of his lungs. Five words. Allah Six words. Sorry. Do you care about Am Yisrael? Do you not? He repeated that maybe 15 times. Ch'bat lecha. No, was silent. hear a pin drop. And I basically said, Rebbe, just please stop screaming at me. I'll go into chilch." Okay. It wasn't like, it wasn't surrender. It was just being drawn into this vortex of energy of raw, unpackaged, unsanitized Raw, primordial, deep passion that came across as screaming. He wasn't musically oriented. The only khisaran that I could think that he had, he wasn't musically oriented. <laughs> so the passion was expressed by decibel level and strength of, you heard his kishkes in every bracha and tefillin, tehillim and to heal him and I just couldn't imagine these two cohering in the same person, soft-spoken, quiet, respectful, and all of a sudden, an eruption of energy, the intensity that was murmuring beneath the surface in a volcanic eruption. Number three: he was the most sophisticated person I ever met. He would speak minimum an hour and a half Friday night. Between Kabbalah, Shabbos, and Marv. Minimum. And I would come home, and my wife would say, What did Rav Aaron talk about tonight? And I would say, He said that Moshe was a good person. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, it Took an hour and a half. <laughs> what does good mean? Good to people, like Rav said, good to Karish different types of good basic good, acquired good, environmental good, <laughs> capitalist good. <laughs> <laughs> There's also such thing as a binary tree. Everything we ever built was a forest of trees. This way, this way, this way, split, two, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, that way, that way, this way. The only way I explain to you is like, take a diamond, put it on an axis and just tilt it one degree at a time and appreciate every glint that comes from a different axis, a different rotation. Take this diamond and literally twirl it 360 degrees. And every time you twirl it, a different ray of light emerged. It's unfortunate, by the way, because that's why so few people can really understand him. Not just because of the diction and the <clears throat> vocabulary, because the writing is dense and the logical structure is, 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 is arresting. It's hard. It deprives us of his knowledge. I tried very hard, I, I see it, I tried very hard to summarize some of the shion and make them digestible and, 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 and accessible to people who are just used to reading articles rather than these major manifestos of curves and nuances and turns and sub-contexts and so sophisticated. And Yesterday we talked this year in the Gemara Shira about how in Yutara he didn't study Akronim or Ishonim or Gemara he studied Ratzem Hashem He was thinking such a metal level. So sophisticated. But there's a dangerous sophistication. Some people are too sophisticated for their own good. And everything can be seen three different ways. And they get saddled in moral relativism. In my opinion, a poster boy for oversophistication, I, you probably know better than me, is Obama. I don't see him as the son of Israel. I just see him as too smart for his own good. He's, he's a bright person. And I really respect his, his education, his intelligence. Okay, with our perspective, their perspective, perspective of, of a terrorist, perspective of the third world, they are, everything's everyone's perspective, because you can analyze anything. If your mind is supple and agile enough, anything can be inverted or rotated. I don't think George Bush was such a bright person. I think they just put out the IQ scores of all the presidents and he ranked in the bottom third. But he had a very clear sense of moral righteousness, of good and evil. You're terrorists, we're not going to describe your position, we'll bomb you. (laughs) And we'll make up a story to to justify, (laughs) bombing. we'll make believe you have weapons and masses. But Ravaran had that sophistication. And he could analyze anything exhaustively. But clear moral identification, when it came to obvious moral issues, there was no flinching, there was no conditions, he expressed that moral outrage clearly, very clear with us. We heard his moral energy and his moral voice, even when it meant taking positions that were unpopular and courageous. I'll just mention, too, in 1973, a few months before the outbreak of the Yom Kippur War, a Libyan civilian airliner, invaded Israeli airspace over the Suez Canal. And the Israeli Air Force made repeated attempts to communicate with them, and when they received no response, they shot down the civilian airliner, and a 100 or so civilians were killed. Most people said, okay, casualties of war, we're defending our country, they're all attacking us, we tried our hardest. No. They quitted themselves. <clears throat> Revira was outraged outraged. How could we have blood on our hands? How could we be responsible? And the story goes that he and Rav Amitav went to Yosef Berg, who was the head of Mizrahi, and they demanded that the government launch an inquiry. But everyone was just rushing into the carpet. No, we weren't murderers. We shot rockets at innocent people. We're defending our airspace. Every and they were sitting in the room with, Rav Berg, or with Yosef Berg and Rav Berg was a little hesitant but they were pressing demanding the government has to launch an inquiry and Yosef Berg evidently got a phone call listened to the phone put down the phone and said okay we're having an inquiry who was it? Rav Saloveitchik had called Yosef Berg and demanded that they launch an inquiry or else World Mizrahi was going to pull out of whatever governmental arrangements they had and then in 1982-83, after those uh, massacres in the two refugee camps in Lebanon, Sabra and Shatila, and we, we weren't shooting, we weren't domestic, we engaged in the, of the massacre, we were in control of the general area of Lebanon and some, uh, some Arabs entered. But we still are held accountable. If we are present in that land and more or less controlling the security condition of that land, then it's blood on our hands. It's morally outraged. And no one sent them, and there's no vagary. There's no, it was very clear. These are very dramatic instances. Obviously, we were exposed to his moral courage and his moral clarity on more trivial, not trivial, but more pedestrian and commonplace on a day-to-day basis. And it's so uncommon. You see, we have so many people in our lives who are clear right and wrong. They have a clear, absolute sense. Let we know people who are, we call them the sophisticated people, who are more nuanced and subtle. How do you both, how do you had that level of sophistication, being able to sense the depth and the complexity of human experience. But when it comes to clear moral issues, to take stands and to see things with lucidity and undistorted clarity. He loved sports. He loved sports. Don't let anyone tell you, right? It's all she could talk about, Shiva. And he loved sports because it highlighted so many character traits that he valued. Teamwork. Work ethic, selflessness, time management, ambition. And he would always quote sports, not not to be trivial or crass, but simply to highlight If Let's say we didn't learn well, we we're wasting our time. He'd he quote some Super Bowl that was won in the last second, and you could change your entire history in a second. Of course, he spent 20 minutes explaining to the Israelis what American football is. As <laughs> opposed <laughs> to this football, the ball is round. <laughs> Just to make sure everyone understood the references. So the story goes, here's one's playing basketball, and one of the players was cherry-picking. You know, the, uh, you know, for the uh, it's just So everyone should understand the context, the benefit of those who aren't basketball fans. Basketball is a two-way game. You play offense, you try to shoot the ball into the hoop, and then you have to run back and defend against the other team. Some sports have divisions, like football. There's a defensive team and an offensive team. But the basketball players are two-way players. Like they could both shoot, try to get the ball into the basket, and then run back and defend. So there are players who cherry pick who they don't run back on defense. They spend their time on the other side of the court. And then they're waiting for their teammates to defend. And then if they get the ball, they'll throw the ball quickly to the other side of the court, and they'll have an easy basket. So when that person ran back, finally, Reviron turned to him and saying, You're playing immoral. <laughs> Never knew you could play basketball morally <laughs> and immoral. <laughs> That's how I, do that. I told yesterday, when I play with my children board games, Shabbos afternoon, I play to lose. The sooner you lose, the sooner you take a nap. <laughs> we all play to lose, right? It's like the first rule of being a parent. When you come out of the hospital, they give you the code book, and they say, Shabbos afternoon, make sure you lose the monopoly as quickly as possible. When he played with his grandchildren, he played to win. He felt it was immoral to deceive them. It's inappropriate to play without putting your full effort into something. Everything you do, do excellently, because mediocrity is contagious. And if you're half-baked in one area, you'll live your life half-baked. If you're excellent or striving for excellent, then it will, in fact, or infiltrate every part of your experience. And that's the third clash. That, was, that again, this is just my. How could he? How can he be so sophisticated and so morally absolute? <clears throat> Torah was everything. Torah was everything to this person. You sat in Shir, you literally felt as if the world had collapsed and was folded into that room. Not the world, the cosmos. That's how deep the level of his Torah was. I felt as if I was exploring God's universe. I wasn't learning a Tosfos or a Rashba I was literally standing in front of Hu What is a Kutchabruchu's Rothson about this? What is a the Kutchabruchu's there? It was a tapestry was a tapestry of Gemara and Ratzin Hashem. And I, I felt as if I didn't need to be anywhere else. There was no world outside. The world outside had shut down and had been collapsed and condensed into that one line of Gemara we were learning. I didn't feel as if it was provincial or antiquated or obsolete. I felt as if it was relevant, real, and encompassed The entire universe, his love of torah it's obviously superfluous for me to describe it. But yet, he was so sensitive to being inspired by the best and the brightest that people had articulated in the broader world around him. Now, I want to be careful here. This is my opinion. Maybe others would disagree. But I think, I want to thank Rabbi Marwak for pressing me on this point this morning. I think Rabbi Lichtenstein was very, very different from Rabbi Soloveitchik in their approach to the broader world, or as people call it, Tara Romanda. Again, I'm sure people will disagree, and this is my own opinion. I'm not, not the smartest person, and I'm not the most well-versed person. So maybe others who have read more the Rav saw alternate systems of knowledge, alternate disciplines. And obviously everyone believes you can get to them through Tara. That's tautologically true. If you just knew Tara well enough, you'd understand math. If you just knew Tara well enough, you'd understand metaphysics. If you just knew Tara well enough, you'd understand chemistry. Because everything that man studies and discovers is based on Tara. Because Tara is the blueprint of our universe. But those who study to say, well, we're not smart enough. We're not the Vilna go." The Lagoon to understand math and music through Torah. We have to study it more frontal. The Rav sensed meaning in these alternate parallel systems that were obviously part of our Kodesh Baruch Hu's Bria. And follow me visually. He, he walked into those worlds. He studied them. And his big word was synthesis. We're going to synthesize these two worlds. Synthesis is obviously based on contrast and conflict, and you synthesize similarly incongruent elements. That's what people call taro mada. That wasn't, that wasn't at the core of Wittgenstein. And that's why he didn't study math or science. He studied literature. Literature is not a discipline. It's not, it's not a science. There's no knowledge out there. It's not some other system. Literature are narratives of human beings describing themselves, their relationships, their communities, their hopes, their dreams. It's a code to the inner emotional landscape of a human being. And if you want to be a better human being and understand the complexity of the human condition, sense moral drive, long for the divine other, then you listen to the conversations that other people had who were similarly inclined. I don't call that Taramanda. Again, it's nomenclature and, and syntax. But literature isn't a discipline. He didn't study math. It's not as if there's some other internal, well-defined system of geometry or how the world is predicated or physics or metaphysics. That's I sense in the rub. And it wasn't, a four, I, the story, when he came to YU, he asked the Rav, what should he study? So the Rav told him, study math. So he studied math after a semester. He came back to the Rav, but he, the Rav said, no, how was the math? And Ron said, I hated it. What should I do? So the Rav said, study more math. It wasn't in his kishkas. I never, ever heard Ravaran say this following word. To me, this speaks volumes. Not the words he said, but the word he didn't say. I never heard him say the word Lahavdil. The quotes on, but Lahavdil, because it wasn't a separate system that he was synthesizing. They had to create. He knew, obviously, protected the world of kedusha. But uh, in my world of kedusha, I, I want to be a better person. I want to understand your heart better. I want to respect you better. I want to feel I want to be more moral. So, if there are other people that have inhabited this planet that had similar aspirations and similar hopes and dreams. And they weren't busy articulating all the halachas of Ekaub spoke about because Chazal were too busy articulating the halachic literature. And they didn't have time to articulate the inner landscape, so listen to them as well. You can't expect the Dar also to be the top surgeon. So Rav and Rav were busy decoding this infinite, vast landscape of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's legal will. So if Matthew Arnold was also thinking about how to be a better human being, or John Milton was trying to oppose secularizing influences in the 17th century, okay, so, listen to what they have to say. And that combination was also just so <coughs> unique. To be so Torah-centric and so engaged. But he wasn't a synthesizer. There was no, it was seamless. I mentioned before, uh, I think I mentioned yesterday, one Friday night, Parsons gracious, he's giving a shear on the fall of man. And Chet Rishon. Friday night, an hour and a half, everyone's fashlofen. Everyone in the front row is falling asleep. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the shear, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. All of a sudden, Forty heads shut up. Did he just quote Mother Goose? Evidently, it's not just a Mother Goose rhyme, but it's a metaphor for the fall of man, that he couldn't put them back together again. I cannot imagine in a million years of Soloveitcher quoting Humpty Dumpty. Because <laughs> he was quoting these major sophisticated systems of Kant and Hegel and people and Otto and so He was quoting a system, he was just quoting knowledge and, and inspiration. Of course, after the sheer, all these Israelis came to us and said, Misa Hamti Dante, a Which would happen all the time. We say Misa Milton Qatar. But it, it wasn't I'm sure people will disagree with that. I'm sure there are people who... And that's number four. It's just so tar centric. So engaged. Not just in letters and in thought, but in society, and in, in politics, in building a state, in and, and every manner and every affair. Number five, halacha was everything. If you wanted a kula, you did not go to Revlath Trust me. Unless it was a very, very extreme case, it was khumra upon khumra upon khumra. Some people are consumed by halacha. Because it's so demanding and so mandating that they employ halacha as the sole interface of religious experience and personal development. What do I have to do? What's my mitzvah? Aser, mutter. That's my guideline. That's my game book. It's my playbook. Well, it should be. Rechava miniyah. It's so wide. It's so vast. It's so all-encompassing. But Rav sense, says, and Rabbi Talbis discussed this both implicitly and explicitly, that before HaKadosh delivered that system at Har Sinai, he also created noble, pure human beings, virtuous hearts, with kindness and goodness. And by developing that personality, that humanity, you could become a better Oved Hashem, even if you never open a Shulchan Aruch. Because Avon never had a Shulchan Aruch. And yet he discovered a Hu. And when people speak about the humanism of reluctance, for some people, that's diverting. I'm working myself as a person, but you know, I'm, I'm so busy thinking about my menshulkheid and my kindness and my politeness. I'm going to sit there and actually look at my tzitzis, how long they are, and measure my kizayis matza and worry about Rabinatan. They're two incongruent pathways. Some people are very legal, meticulous. I've taught long enough, I can see this in boys. There's great security and confidence in the security blanket of halacha. For some people, it becomes more than a security blanket, it becomes OCD. But for most of us, there's security. What do I have to do? When do I have to do it? How long? And I've, I put a check, I'm, I'm fine. I'm smiling kindly on you. And that becomes the cocoon. And some people's minds race towards, well, who am I as a human being? And I view other human beings. And those other human beings could care less about the Shach, and could care less about the Platon and Shabbos, and the potato cocoa, They're just good people. Live life as a good person. Don't be so parochial and tribal and rabbinic. And he fused those two. I'll tell you two stories, one of which represents how halachic fidelity, how deeply halachic he was. And one represents represent his ability to sense menschlichkeit, independent. Rav Amiton, Zechot Tzaddik Levracha, once gave a shir in Yeshiva. What would happen, he said, if you were stranded on a desert island, and you had the following choice. You could either meet eat chazer, or you could eat the flesh of a crash victim, human flesh. Now what's the premise of this question? In pure halacha calculus, Human flesh is less Usser than Chazer. There is no Isser in the Torah explicitly against eating human flesh. At most, it's maybe a bit less, Say eh? you're not fulfilling this as Shrita. It's probably only Derabonim. In pure halachic calculus, you should eat human flesh. But how could you? It's repulsive. It's repugnant. So let me tell a quote. Or a called Dara Revi was the name of Chassam He said you should eat the chazir. And keep in mind, I want to be clear: moral sensibility can never, ever override halacha. Chas v'shalom. Here you're already in a compromised halachic position. You have to violate an iser anyway to be koch nefesh. So the question is, which iser? Multiple choice: A or B. But you can error fill in. Oh, I don't like that iser because it rides against my moral sensibility. So you already compromised. You're facing the specter of violating Do you calculate the choice based on pure halachic calculus, or do you insert moral sensibility? Rav Amitav said, you should eat the Uh You should eat the Because how could you eat human flesh given the flesh less of Anissa? We ran over to Rav Aaron, and he said, of course you should eat human flesh. That's a whole separate conversation. It was a beautiful, harmonious discourse between these two people. There was absolutely no ego. They loved each other to death, respected each other. As Tova Lichtenstein told me at the Havel, he says, you tell me, and me, you didn't just have Rabbanim, you had parents. Because they were a couple. And we saw a couple. There's a very unique dynamic. We, we, had, we had parents. They're like our parents. of are Two people came together. We danced with them together. There was a synergy of two that was very different than one plus one. What do you mean? Halohah, sensibility, Then there's another story Rivaran once told us. Ravaran was sitting with us at a Shmooz at a Tish and he said, Let me tell you the following story. I was walking through Shari Khazad, neighborhood in Ushalaim, I'm sure many of you have visited. And I saw an Arab merchant pull his car up to the side of the curb, stop suddenly, the back of the truck flung open, and all the fruits and vegetables were scattered on the ground. And I saw a group of Yeshiva Bachrim gather around, starting to analyze whether that is to help him pick up the food. He's an Arab. Is Islam considered a vonazara? Is it not? What's the status of Ger Toshav? Someone who's an affiliate to the Jewish people. What's the status of the? I don't know, Question. Should we help him? Said I was horrified. Here you have people that are conversant in the sophistries of halachic details, but don't possess the basic menschlichkeit, just to get down on their hands and knees, and clean up the fruit and vegetables. And we all felt really proud, because Rechensim was, so to speak, critiquing the yeshivas boys that he had seen. And then he said, and unfortunately, and he said, why can't they have basic menschlichkeit? And then he said, and unfortunately in our community, he said, when we are able to infuse basic menschlichkeit, sometimes my Talmidim are completely ignorant, or even the basic halakhic directives. And why can't we have both? He was very even-handed. He was not a. He was not a. a, a, a he in no way was a favorite son. He in no way was. You what uh, support your own you know, partisan. Why can't we have both? Then there was silence in the room. And one boy in the back raised his hand and said, "Rebbe, but if you could only have one, which would it be?" So we were all mortified. You don't ask a questions. question. You just... It's, listen, if you can only have one, and without missing a beat, instantly, he said, if I can only have one, be meant shachkai. And he quoted the Mishnah and Avos Rabbi Yochadam ben Zakkai, held the contest, he asked his taminim, what's the most important trait? One said ayin Tova. one said shachayin Tova. one said ishla Tova. And Blaz Bit Horkinus said Leiftof. And B'yachim ben Benzakai awarded Elizabeth Horkinus the Chlaal Devarov And The Leifto of a good, kind heart. what From and good, kind and legal, detailed and organic, legal and natural. It's so uncommon. Some of us have one and the other, and all of a sudden you saw this combination of the two, and it was seamless. He didn't say, now I'm going to present the legal part of his nature. Now it was just, sometimes one aspect came out, sometimes the other aspect, it was part of the same person. Number six. This is probably the hardest. He was a humanist. He believed that human beings shared universal experiences. And he read what human beings had written and said about their experiences. And he respected human beings. But I would never, ever use the word liberal about him in terms of this socio-political context of social liberalism, placing man at the center, human rights. He saw himself as a defender of the traditional hierarchy against the encroaching social liberalism of the last 200 years. And that's why he identified so deeply with those of the 17th and 20th century, the uh, 19th century, who faced similarly secularizing influences. He was not a liberal, did not see man at the center, and men's rights, he hated that word rights, July 4th, democracy has be- made us intoxicated with our rights. Our rights, and my rights, and civil rights, and your rights, and legal rights. So we live for rights? We detested that. We live for duty, for responsibility, for mission. Our rights protect our vulnerabilities and unleash our talents so that we can harness them to serve our world and our creator and our community. Rights. I remember how outraged he was. Outraged when he read a review in the New York Times... He's outraged, comparing different airline food, which was better. My goodness, he says, such nourishment. Whether this airline food is better than that airline food, you're punished alone, we would say. That's what life's about, comparing how well cooked the potatoes are or not cooked. So he's deeply engaged. He really was a humanist, believed in man, respected their. Respected the universe within every human heart. But he wasn't a social liberal. Extremely conservative. Extremely conservative by nature, not just about socio-political issues. In general, it was very hard to nudge him. Very hard to budget him it took a long time, whenever I wanted to make a change. He wasn't, he wasn't a rapid changer. Very conservative by nature. Very protective. Respective, respectful and protective. It's very hard to introduce. (coughs) And that's normally the image. Normally our image of an assembly is making progressive and modern. Extremely, extremely. (coughs) And that brings me to point number seven, which is related. He connected us to the Liffisher world. I say this in Baltimore, which is a Liffisher town. People don't normally associate him with that. Modern, modern, Orthodox. Great writer, no beard, was Elie son-in-law, PhD, Harvard, and he can mingle with those crowds. Any room he found himself, he was the prince. He was a giant amongst men. You have the most sophisticated, fancy, affluent, articulate people. They were they cowered in his presence, not just because of his intellectual strength. Just he felt like you were in the presence of a prince, of a nobleman. I mean, he just stood there in awe. Absolute all, no matter who you are. Sometimes people that are arrogant and condescending and self assured, you couldn't be in his presence. You literally. Uh, the first time I sat in his room, when I was called in, he wanted me to stay a second year in yeshiva. I literally, literally was hyperventilating. When I introduced my wife to him, I remember, in nineteen eighty seven. I remember my age, nineteen eighty nine. Ravon was sitting there at the table at a banquet. I brought my wife with her <laughs> like I whispered from 10 feet away not because he was frightening but he just felt the awe you couldn't get near he was the kindest person that was the irony You just sat there tre- trembling literally your knees were shaking your knees went weak but it was called Yiddish to us. whenever he would say something he would say it in Yiddish translate to English because he brought us back to that world of Yiddish as the Talbot said earlier, his rabbi was Rav Aron Salavitchik and Rav but His rabbi was Rav and he quoted him often. He truly saw Yeshiva Haritzia. It's going to, to sound strange. Yeshiva Haritzia, Gush, Tatilumi, Army, Kipas Walking the Gush, kids are wearing sandals. The, the whole nine yards. He saw it as voloshin. Truly, we had conversations about the differences between voloshin and gush. Here we give shiurim. And the premise was, okay, the basic backbone is the same, okay, if they change, if the And we don't have so many people anymore. We don't have those people. It was our connection. He didn't go through the Holocaust. He wasn't a Holocaust person. There were some people who mediated the Holocaust for us, processed it for us. He eluded the Holocaust. And he was this fresh, almost unaffected, not that he was trivial about it, but this fresh, unaffected product of it. He hadn't been in Europe, but he had received so much from that European world. And his voice wasn't in any way tempered or altered by the trauma of the Holocaust. Holocaust victims, their voice changed. Some for the better, some for the worse, but it was a whole different voice on Europe. Glorification of Europe, Disproportionate glorification of Europe because the Yeshivas are eyes. Everyone's position on Europe was skewed because of the Holocaust. It became a whole different identification. It wasn't. This is a pure, neutral, unaffected connection to that world. And as I said before, its connection to the Haredi world, there was, there was never judgmentalism, there was never anger. That, in Baltimore, there's a famous uh, famous one. He reviewed Riffelman's book. and he disagreed with a lot of famous line. People are smiling, but you can read it. Look it up online. He was begging Riffelman to break through the, the walls that seemed to separate the communities in a very pure and sincere way. And he said, I remember fondly on a personal note sledding with you in what park? Jewel Hill. Hill Park. Because he used to go sledding together. And he ended his... He ended his statement, when will we ever were we ever sled again or something. But just in a natural example, was his world. He wasn't a, an unconditional advocate. He wasn't uh, a, a, a biased supporter. He wasn't an opponent. He knew its strengths, his weaknesses, made his choice. And one of his children is a very, very well-known Rosh shiva in the Haredi world. And he once was asked to give a lecture in an Upper East Side synagogue. And the title was a title that was meant to bait him. The year in Israel, f- development or flipping out or something. So the truth is, like Talvis mentioned before, how he was very careful about his titles, but very often he would spend the first 20 minutes critiquing the title. They um, would always say, "Okay, we'll this, but if it wants this, this that." They don't want to speak up. so that's why the shir was so long. Because by the time you thanked everyone, <laughs> by the time you finished with the, explaining the title, you know it was already a matter of time, and the shir was starting. So he critiqued the title, of course. He refused to. One of the things he was reveling. you could not bait him. You could not bait him. That's how strong world he was. It was like a fortress. Remember once at a press conference, we get asked a question. Some guy, in the old days, would used to be antagonism and confrontation. A boy from another shiva came in, raised his hand for a question, said, Rabbi, is it true that you're not pikars?" Some other issue. Right. So the says, "Well, I don't know, but I know, but I know you're a machozif." <laughs> but without anger, but you're a machozif. But again, it wasn't attacking, it wasn't retaliatory. It was just... In, you know, in the <laughs> never baited. All the vitriol, and people who wrote letters again, never never responded, never felt the need to respond. That I remember being amazed at when I was young. You know, when you're older, you could care less about all these machlux and ideologies as om or opam When you're young, your heart burns with the passion of ideology. Who am I? Or what am I? Am I Rebbe? And you're my team, and the Rebbe Olympics, and... I remember just being so impressed that people were tagging him, I like, okay, it was just never never an issue for him. So it was that progressivism and modernity and, and plowing into new areas of our world and engaging and addressing and articulating and but it's a buffer. telling us stories of Chaim Berlin, telling us stories of Camp Morris, telling us stories of Riv Huttner saying things in Yiddish. Quoting stories of Rav Bosh Chaim and befriending Rosh Zalman, best friends. It's just seamless. So you don't have that too often. People pitch their ideological flag, and that's the camp. And finally, number eight, and I spoke about this extensively over Shabbos, and to me this is the major encapsulator. I spoke number one and number eight. Number one is the relationship between scholarship and piety and goodness. Number eight, so creative, so imaginative in his derech halimud, in his thinking, he encouraged us to be creative. He displayed creativity. He thought with fresh ideas and fresh set of eyes. How this quote was about his conversant, obviously. He one of the reasons he, he would always quote Matthew Arnold, a nineteenth-century writer. So we always were were, in, were intrigued because. Matthew Arnold's statements, and his statements are very similar, but in addition, Reb was very mocked on a sheet of Rashi. Most people, Paskin, Pesim Shechadar, that your peyos for a man, have to come over the ear bone. So there's a sheet of Rashi that the peyos have to come down to the ear lobe. So for people that have beers, it's not a problem, not an issue, but for people without beers, so Lichtenstein always wore his sideburns down to his ear lobe. So it became a cult. We all would grow our sideburns. We called them the Gushburns and to be like our Rebbe. And then all of a sudden we constantly quote Matthew Arnold and we looked at Matthew Arnold, he talked about sideburns down to the <laughs> They're always like we're intrigued by that. You know? But they were similar in thought and similar. So as Matthew Arnold said, this is a quote, to, turning a stream of fresh and free thought on received and stale ideas. Turning a stream of fresh and free thought on a received and stale ideas. A sense of refreshing Torah, restoring its relevance, creating a Derech HaLimud, building us from bottom to top as human beings, unafraid to take new stances, unafraid to... It's creativity. Fresh thoughts, bold thinking. But... Go to his cavern in Yishalayim if you get a chance. He was asked, what do you want to write on your cavern a few years before his death? So that's two words. Eben Hashem. That's all that's written on his caver. Not these poetic, floral... Eben uh, Hashem. <laughs> And if you're asking me, all the traits this person possessed everything, all the humility and the piety, the addition, the kindness, it, it, it was his He saw himself as a slave, as an Ebed-Lefnei submitting, screaming Kedusha, working at learning, sleeping four hours a night in his prime, staying up all night, Yom Kippur, standing all Yom Kippur, not eating before tequils. Just work, work, seeing how voters Hashem we articulate religion today in civil and genteel terms, redemption and meaning and purpose and value and community and goals and content. What happened to the work? To the fact that we have to work and submit to the Ratzan of our Kodesh Baruch Hu? Who has that? Creative people, independent-minded people. To be creative and independent, you have to have an ego. You have to project yourself. You're not a conformist and you bristle at conformity. Submissive people... Operate within prefab conformist stereotypes, and they can't escape the prison of biased ideas and achieve creativity. And that's absolutely true. There are two people. There are two ways to read text. Some people read text reverentially. Some people read text creatively. Read text creatively is what is the text saying? Unbiased. I don't care what the Ramban says, what the Rashba says. What does the text say? And a reverential, reverential reader was well, romance. So, wisdom for creativity. The Ekin Ramban, okay. He was both. He was reverential and creative. He was a supernova, fresh thought in the problem. Just submission to... There's a Rebbe in Eretz Yisrael, just to summarize, who thinks in creative fashion. And one of his creative ideas is as follows. If you look in the Torah... When should you bench? If you eat a full meal, be chalta, the sabato, or the If you go now to the to stuff kosher bite, that's, so, so that's the last restaurant. I mean, they used to have jacks, but I know that's a long way. If you go to kosher bite and you order uh, chicken and french fries and onion rings and corn on the cob and mezainais uh, and two drinks and whatever else they serve. sushi now, see, make a bite of fashas and because chazal said only if you eat bread. In terms of the pastures of the Pasuk, you're, you're walking out with your stomach exploding. Mm-hmm. So there's a dissonance between the Pasuk and between Chazal's codification. So there's a Rebbe in Eretz who says we should go back to the original Pesat in the Pasuk. And he'll bench even if he doesn't have bread. If he sits down to a meal of schnitzel and rice and hummus and, and, and vegetables, he'll bench. None of us would Chaza. We're being inauthentic, right? we're not being creative, we're, not, we're lying to ourselves, so to speak. So someone once said, what's the difference between that Rav and Rav Lichtenstein? He said as follows, <coughs> that Rav will bench if he has a full meal even without bread. Rav Lichtenstein is mockbit to eat bread at every meal. Because he doesn't want to escape and evade the original creative, fresh meaning. If he's full, he has to bench. But he can't contradict Chazal. So he it every day. And that story highlights that final point. Creative, fresh, honest, authentic, unflinching, courageous, but conformist, traditionalist, submissive. These people don't exist. They just don't exist. So if you ask me, what is the lesson we have to take to try to style our lives in the model of reflectancy? So I never use notes, but I have to today. Here is the challenge of reflectancy: To be educated as well as pious and kind. To be soft-spoken and genteel, but thunderous and passionate and fulminating. To be sophisticated and complex and nuanced, but unambiguous in our moral clarity. To be Torah-centric, and realize that Torah needs no other discipline, but engage with the broad world of human experience and social agendas. To recognize and accept the immutability of halacha, but recognize that it's not all-consuming, and have sensitivity to sculpt a better human being, in the, in not just in the divine temple, but in the human heart. To be a humanist who believes in man, without submitting to social liberalism. To be engaged in modernity, in the dynamic changes and updating religion with greater relevancy while being a traditionalist who holds fast to the glory of our golden past. To be unflinchingly creative and fresh because a Kodesh Baruch Hu wants fresh Torah while being submissive. Good luck. Good luck on that. And wish should have an easy fast.